Your kids are out of school, so you decide to take them out on a fishing trip. While you're out fishing, you spot a suitcase floating around. Your kid gets super excited, thinking it's hidden treasure. But once they open up a suitcase, they discover parts of a human body. He was never reported missing, and the police will only focus on one suspect, his wife. Was she innocent or guilty? This is the story of Melanie McGuire. Maya is the name. Gone Bad is the game. Gone Bad is this series that I do on this very channel, so make sure you like and subscribe by the end of this video if you like this type of content. What is the series about, Maya? Well, I sit on my fat ass every Wednesday and I tell you a story about a person that has lived quite a regular life, kind of like you and me, you know, normal family, normal job, pretty, like, average... I want to say boring, <laughs> quite a personal story here. But then, one day, they switched to crime. And it's not called something like snapped, because I personally don't really believe that a lot of people just snap from one moment to the other. I think they're usually motivated, and there are a couple of triggers, at least, before the moment of snapping. And the person we are talking about today, oh boy, so... Myself, as about over a million people, have seen this TikTok, right? <laughs> Listen, I post true crime on TikTok, so it was logical that it was on my For You page. Let's roll it first, so that you understand what I'm on about. Because nowhere in the video or in the tags it said who the perp is, of course, I opened up the comments. I was not aware of the case before. I was like, let me see who this is, what it's about. Is there something interesting for me to, you know, do the Gone Bad series on? And boy, as soon as I flicked those comment section up, I started raging. And I was like, I need to cover this. Because it was very clear from this video that she is the one that is a perpetrator. Possibly could be innocent, but he's the victim, is the point. Literally, so many comments are just saying how he is the one that looks like a psychopath. Oh my gosh, she's so pretty. Why would she lose her life? As if, like, pretty people never kill. And then, like, the most popular ones are all saying, like, but he's the one that looks like a serial killer. All of us that thought that he killed her. People... What the actual... F you know by the end of the video that he is the victim. Finally, at the bottom of that comment section, I actually managed to find the name of the perpetrator and the victim as such. And I thought I should definitely cover this case because it is one of possibly the most interesting ones out there and I kind of really need people's thoughts on it. And one other thing, trust me, by the end of this video, you will definitely find her to be probably one of the most unlikable people out there. 
And hopefully my comment section is gonna look something different than that TikTok comment section. I actually beg of you not to re-victimize somebody on my own videos. But now let's get into the story. It was May the 5th, 2004, when a couple of fishermen took their kids out to fish in Virginia Beach. Once they went on a boat really deep into the water, they discovered this suitcase, basically just floating in the middle of nowhere, and they decide it kind of has some weight to it. So the dad kind of pulls it onto the boat, and the kids get super psyched, super excited, like, oh my god, it's hidden treasure. And for some confusing reason, maybe because true crime wasn't everywhere all around us, the parents actually allow the children to open up the suitcase, despite actually first saying that there was a foul smell coming out of it. And of course, as soon as the child opens the suitcase, the parents realize that probably they're gonna have to have therapy for the rest of their freaking life. Because in this suitcase, they only found male legs, but only from the knee down. And these parts of the human legs were wrapped in the garbage bags. So immediately these dads call 911 and the other one calls the Marine Patrol to come and get this suitcase and transport it to another boat to give it to the police. So from the first time that the police lays eyes onto the contents of this suitcase, they realize that A, they have a problem. They can't identify this body just from the body parts that have been found, but also that there must be other suitcases floating in Chesapeake Bay containing other body parts belonging to the same person. Six days later, in Chesapeake Island Nature Preserve, other passerby is just passing by the suitcase and he opens it up, smells the foul smell and here immediately doesn't look further into the bags but just notifies the refuge workers. Some days later, the third suitcase would float up on the beach. In this suitcase, they find the torso and the head. And the head is really bloated, so what they do is that they traumatize some sketch artists who probably had to go to the autopsy room and just look at this detached head. It's the details that nobody tells you about, but I visualize it so I have to freak you all out because this is probably how it works. How the hell else? So this sketch artist makes the sketch and they publish it to the media. And this is obviously done because they still are to find the arms to possibly identify this person from the fingerprints. And obviously nobody really recognizes the face because it is deformed due to the amount of time that it was in the water decomposing. What the second suitcase in particular, though, gives them the answers to is the cause of death. So they find the gunshots to the torso and the other one to the head. Immediately, they can draw up a couple of conclusions. First of all, how he died, the bullets that were used. The bullets that were used were said to be used usually in target practice. And also, just based on the body parts that are in different suitcases, they are suspecting that these two suitcases came with the third one. So, that it's pack of the three. So, like, same brand, just like the suitcases that are in different sizes. 
Now having that sketch, they are comparing it to all of the missing persons cases in the area. They are checking the military records. They're like, somebody must have reported this guy missing. And as I mentioned, they're also running it on the news. So one of these days, a woman named Sue gets out of the shower and she's just like watching the news on the telly and sort of sees this face. And she immediately says, this face looked familiar to me. This is my friend Bill. And as soon as she spots it on the TV, she kind of turns to her husband, John, who is also watching the news. And she's like, do you not see what I see, basically? Like, you guys went to the Navy together. Do you not think that this is Bill? And he's kind of brushing it off, like, he doesn't look like Bill. But Sue said... Bill had, like, a red mark sort of right here, like, under his eye. And the sketch artist kind of detailed that, obviously, in black and white. But she's like, no, the mark wouldn't have been there if this wasn't Bill. So she asked her husband, John, to call the Crime Stoppers. After the Crime Stoppers, they call Bill's sister, Cindy, to inform her. And they're like, when was the last time you heard from your brother? Because... We haven't heard from him in about a week. And, well, they just discovered his body, like, today. Like, has anybody heard from him? But what strikes me immediately is that nobody is still calling his wife. It is only once they run out of all of the options that somebody actually rings Melanie and asks her, like, hey, where is your husband? Have you never reported him missing? And Melanie just tells them, I mean, we had a fight and he just stormed off and I didn't see him in a week. Like, what seems to be the problem? Why would I report him missing? It's not like he's a father of my two children. You know, he just stormed off. It's something that he does. And Sue kind of just hangs up the phone and is like, this is sketch. As Sue is passing this information to the Crime Stoppers and to the police, they recover the first suitcase with his pelvis. So, sort of like from the waist down up to his knees. Here they find his arms, so they are able to use his fingerprints to identify that this indeed was 39-year-old Bill McGuire. And his fingerprints were on the record because he had this one charge of reckless driving. Now, just a quick morbid sideline. I just thought of this as I was actually saying it out loud. Don't you find it a bit weird how his body was cut? I just find it a bit weird how the pelvis was cut from, like, torso to his knees. I don't know if there's anything to it. It's just that nobody made that observation and it just, like, hit me as I was saying it. It's just equally disturbing. But yeah, I just found that weird. So now that the police actually had identified the body of the 39-year-old Bill McGuire, well, they can't play the avoiding game like the rest of her friends, and they actually have to notify her first. So who was Bill and his wife that nobody wanted to call? Melanie McGuire identifies as a typical Jersey girl. She was always helping people out from the young age. They both worked as servers in the restaurant, and this is how the two of them met. But Melanie later finished the nurse school and went to become a nurse. And she was working with the women that were trying to get pregnant, so she was working at a fertility clinic. In one of the two interviews that she has done, she said that what made her a good nurse was type A personality. 
First of all, Melanie, not everybody knows what the hell that is. I had to Google it. I hate when criminals make me do this. I'm like, I'm already researching. Why are you making me do more work? So, type A personality, quite literally copy-paste from Google. I didn't dig much. Is basically when you're competitive as hell, you have a higher stress level, you hate failure, and you find it difficult to, like, stop working, even when you achieve your goals. So... Great. That made you a good nurse, not the fact that you like people and are empathetic. All right, so let's play part of her interview where she speaks about nursing. Just note, as I'm going to be playing quite a few clips in this one, her switches in just mood, attitude, passion when she speaks about Bill compared to her job, for example. What made you a good nurse? Type A personality. Um... The way I looked at it, I was not going to be happy with anything less than the total comfort level of my patients. In 1998, Bill called John and I and told us that he wanted to bring Melanie down to meet us. Melanie, she's a really nice person to be around. Physically, she's beautiful. She's very smart. She had a lot of the same sense of humor that Bill had. When Bill was making jokes, Melanie would be right in there. He liked to razz people. She would razz him right back. He really uh, was crazy about her. What was your relationship with Bill like in the beginning? In the beginning, it was it was the challenge. It was the chase. It was... We, we had a bit of a tempestuous relationship even before we, we got married. We would break up, get back together. Bill and Melanie dated for quite a while. They were crazy in love at first, but it quickly became tumultuous. There were infidelities. They'd go back and forth. They'd fight. I think they liked the drama of it. I think she thought she could make a difference in his life. I think she thought that she could maybe change him, make him happy. She truly did love him. Now, as I mentioned, both of them met working at this restaurant. She's working in the restaurants in Jersey. She's a waitress, and she met Bill McGuire. He was also a server. Bill was known as the rude waiter because he would speed people up in a jocular way, but they loved him, and he would ask for the rude waiter. What was he like? Funny, clever. He had a big heart when he wanted to. He wanted all the right things. He was very, very loyal. He was a, a tremendous friend. When I first met Bill, I didn't know what to make of him because he wasn't really a practical joker and whatnot. And I thought, this guy could probably get on some of his nerves with all of this. But he was so funny, he just kind of overcame whatever resistance you might have to. So in 1998, Bill introduces Melanie to his friends Sue and John. And in 1999, they got married, regardless of their relationship being tempestuous, as everybody described it, regardless of them, like breaking up, starting fights. Everybody said that they loved the drama and they actually thrived in this. They decide to settle in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Bill actually had a 65,000 job there as the professor and senior programmer analyst at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Now, something that was very telling when watching this documentary and just genuinely reading all of the source materials out there on this case, it is how Melanie and the whole side of her family can't put together two consecutive good sentences about Bill. 
Like, one is like, okay, he was funny. He was nice if he had to be. Like, <laughs> like her stepfather said that he was lovable, but also calculating. All of them point out that Bill had issues with gambling and that he would make frequent trips to the Atlantic City. And I'm just wondering later in the story, this will become relevant, whether that was just to play to the whole timeline of the story or not. And I'm saying that because everything in this story will turn out to be really twofold. So yes, you can understand the frustration that, you know, somebody that married your daughter is spending their money gambling. Like, it's obviously an addiction. It is a flaw. It's putting strain on the marriage and probably taking some toll on the mental health of your own daughter. But yet again, he's a victim here. Somebody say a good word about the guy. And what strikes me as odd is the reverse of it. The fact that Bill's friends in all of these interviews, they state all of the qualities of Bill. So nobody even mentions this like as a problem. Everybody says he was the most loyal guy, the most loving guy, always there for them. But also what they don't do is shit all over Melanie. So I just found that interesting and a real like showcase of the character of both of these families. Regardless of these issues with gambling that Melanie was aware of, the two of them start having kids. And once Melanie started putting her foot down, saying no more to gambling, then he'd kind of move into investing into stock markets. So he liked the feeling of just gambling and probably the unknown more than she did. We were both happy, new parents, and then things changed drastically. He had a dual personality. He could be very likable. And then on the other hand, he'd be very calculating, manipulating. And he had always had issues with gambling. And he would go through periods where he would go down to Atlantic City a lot. There were times that he would just take off to the sea and gamble and she just wouldn't hear from him, wouldn't know what was going on. He found he could make some money gambling. There were good times with that, and there were bad times, and there were a couple times I put my foot down, and I said, that's it, no more. So then he would get involved in the stock market. He wanted what he wanted, and he couldn't get it fast enough, and with that came frustration, and eventually that frustration became directed at, uh, at me. There was one particular argument over the phone where he had gotten stopped for a traffic ticket. He had an absolutely atrocious driving record. So I start to argue back, and the next thing coming out of his mouth is, when I get home, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to smash your face in. It's very difficult for me to think back on it because I actually drove off in the middle of the night, and I, I had left and I should have stayed gone. Why did you stay? I wasn't strong enough to leave. Did you love him? I did. I did. And even though, now at this point, bear in mind, I'm having an affair. So, yeah, that was a sentence, wasn't it? Did you love him? Yeah, but bear in mind. I'm also having an affair, so, yeah. What appealed to you about Brad Miller? He was just very, very tender. Uh, I really tried to fight it, but I couldn't. I couldn't fight it. 
Greg was a doctor at the fertility clinic that she worked at, and he would really be giving her attention. So, like, she would come from lunch and find, like, a little gift on her table. He saw the ring on her finger, and he didn't really care. So, at this point, she is falling for Greg, and her marriage is technically a shit show, according to her. So, what would be the best thing to add into that mix? (laughs) Yes, a child a second child. At first, as she is going through her pregnancy, they're just flirtations at her workplace between her and Greg. But then, as she is 38 weeks pregnant and just about to go to maternity leave, she goes into his office and the affair officially begins. He was so kind. I'd come back to my desk after a long meeting with a patient and there'd be lunch sitting on my desk waiting for me. You know, there was always a little bit of, of flirtation, banter back and forth. Melanie was about 38 weeks pregnant and things changed between her and Dr. Miller. I was about to go out on maternity leave and I was sitting actually in his office at his desk. I just mentioned that I have a pinched nerve in, in my neck and he just he put his hands on my shoulders and started to, to rub my back. I tried to, I really tried to fight it because this was not going to be good. (laughs) This was not going to be good for anybody. But I couldn't, I couldn't fight it. After Melanie came back from maternity leave, she and Dr. Miller started a full-blown affair. And it seemed like they were falling in love with each other, although they were both married with young children. Shortly after my second son was born, that's when things began to... the final descent downhill, if you will. Who the fuck starts having an affair with a woman who is 38 weeks pregnant? Like, and going on maternity leave, it's not like you're even gonna see her, so you have to wait for, what, half a year, a year for her to even come back? For you to hit it? Like, I do not understand. Is this a fetish? Is this a thing? Do people have a thing with women? Like, why not start it? Why start it when she's pregnant? I do not. My brain can never wrap... My mind can never... If anybody knows the psychology of this, (laughs) I cannot put words into a sentence. If anybody knows the psychology of this, because my mind cannot wrap its its head around it. Mm -hmm. As if this wasn't enough, all of the pressure of hiding an affair and having a second child in a marriage that you don't want to be in. Well, her husband actually wanted to buy a house. I know, how dare he? And actually live happily within this marriage. So, Bill wants to put a deposit down for half a million dollar house. And Melanie is, like, torn between everything, but she decides, yeah, Let's put the deposit down. And when she's asked about this in the interviews, she says, well, he would come into some money, whether it is from gambling or also he earns a substantial amount of money from work, and then would kind of gamble it all away. So she thought, okay, well, now there is this opportunity and I really don't want it, but he also has some money stashed, so better going into a deposit than him gambling it away. There's no logic. Make it make sense? You can't. What doesn't help her feelings of being torn is that her lover is constantly, like, calling her, saying, don't put the deposit down, don't buy the house, I see the future with you. 
these calls are unfortunately not recorded because what she tells him is something along the lines of not to worry because she will take care of it. And with this, we come to April the 28th, 2004. This is when they finally closed on the house. And Bill starts to get everything in order straight away. So at 5.37, he calls the gas company in order to transfer the gas accounts to the new house. Then he calls two of his friends. He calls one of them at 5.44 and one at 5.59 p.m. His tone of voice during these calls is thrilled. He is thrilled to have closed this deal. He is super excited and just called his friends to celebrate these news. Later that night, the seller of the house tried to ring Bill, and his friends noticed that he wasn't responding to messages on his BlackBerry after 6.10 p.m., which they found super strange. Like, he still isn't sleeping, he was just super excited, like, 10-15 minutes ago on a phone. And the seller found it strange because, well, he just closed this deal, he was super excited, he really wanted this house. So why is he suddenly not answering my phone calls? Later that night, on the other end of their house in Woodbridge, Melanie is having a call with her lover. And she tells him not to worry. I mean, yes, they did close the deal on this house and put a deposit down and paid all of that money. But listen, Bill is asleep now. As soon as he wakes up, she's going to sort it all out. And not just that, but she's going to tell him that she wants a divorce. You know what this would really be an awkward timing for? For him to go missing and disappear. And that is exactly what happens. Because according to Melanie, and here is when we start only having one side of the story. So take it with a grain of salt. According to Melanie, at around 3 or 4 in the morning, Bill wakes up and immediately starts up an argument. She can't really explain what for. It doesn't really make much sense to her, but she would say it was always a good time for an argument, so I guess 3, 4 in the morning on one of the happiest days of his life, good time for an argument. Apparently, the argument started because he didn't actually want this house, and he was unhappy that she even allowed him to settle for it because she knew that he actually wanted a house in Virginia Beach, near Chesapeake Bay. And because of her now, because she wanted to settle, well, he had to. So listen to her account of events. I need you to hear it because I want to know if we are thinking the same thing as we are listening to this. From there, things became more physical. How physical? In what way? He shoved a dryer sheet in my mouth. He had a thing about dryer sheets. The story that Melanie tells about a fight that seems to escalate over a dryer sheet is the same story she told us back when we first spoke with her. We're still arguing, and there's the laundry basket, and there's a dryer sheet just hanging out of one of the baby's sleeves. He hated them. He thought it was lazy that I wouldn't stand there and put in the liquid fabric softener, and, um, yeah. And it went out of control. This was the type of mother I was, um, that I would leave this, this sheet in there for, for my baby to possibly choke on. Before I know it, I'm up against the, the wall, and the dryer sheet is being shoved into my throat. And then he just smacked me. In the face? Yeah, open hand, because he probably would have broken my cheek if it had been a closed fist. Um, and then I looked down, there's my two-year-old. I grabbed the baby, 
and went to the bathroom right behind me and shut the door. I just wanted away from him at that point. He said he was leaving and he wasn't coming back. And I could tell my children why they didn't have a father. Did he say this to you through the bathroom door? Yeah, through the bathroom door the entire time. I imagine he was packing things and leaving. He was up and down the stairs a lot, but every trip back and forth berating me. What's the last thing you remember saying to him? Stop. Stop. Something I noticed, and that first very nice interviewer that interviewed her back in the day also had the reaction to, were the details, the dryer sheet. It just strikes me like the typical characteristic of people who are lying during interviews when they put too many details. They just add all sorts of unnecessary details in order to make it a credible story, and that's in particular what makes it incredible. But also another thing after re-watching this a couple of times that strikes me is like, okay, so he has her pinned against the wall, right? That would supposedly leave some marks. First of all, it's the first time this is happening, so okay, cool, let's say it happens. So, first of all, she would probably have some markings around her neck, and also he apparently slaps her, and it's not with a fist, because that would have broken her face, yet again, too many details. But she's kind of insinuating that it might have led to some bruising. So, I understand it's 2004, and the cameras and the phones weren't as great, but wouldn't you, as mother of two children, have gone to the police, like, right as these markings were fresh, to ensure that you get a restraining order, and to ensure that this doesn't happen again, and that he doesn't put you and your children in danger. I just find it odd, and that's why I find so many parts of this story unbelievable. I'm not saying that some parts of it didn't happen, but there are two specific parts where she adds too much detail. The dryer sheet and the slaps. Like, she just adds additional things that doesn't add anything to the story. It just kind of sounds like, you know, she's overcompensating for something that might not have happened. So now you and I are thinking, okay, he goes out, he doesn't come back the next day, you file either restraining order or a missing persons report. But she doesn't do any of those things, and her justification is that they used to fight, she used to go either gambling and then stay overnight, or just used to leave and then come back home, and this time she was done. Instead, the day of the 29th, she speaks to the attorney about filing for divorce, and she also goes to the Middlesex County Courthouse to apply for a domestic violence restraining order. That day, she doesn't file the restraining order because the court was crowded, apparently, so she does return to do that, but she moves herself and her children to Red Roof Inn in Edison, paying for her room in cash so that it can't be tracked. The day after, she did go in front of a judge to give the sworn statement about that fight. She had to go in front of a judge and give sworn statement about the incident that happened. Tell me what uh, happened that brought you to court today for temporary training order. Um, my husband and I closed on our first house on Wednesday. That should be a positive thing. Yeah, it should. Um, he's been behaving really 
erratically. Ms. McGuire, you're safe here. Don't worry. Melanie explained to the judge how Bill had been violent with her. Did he hate me? Um, not, not until, well, I don't need to sound like I had absolutely no part in this. I said some not nice things and slapped me. As part of the questions, Melanie was asked by the judge if she owned any firearms. Do you know if there's any uh, weapons? Not to my knowledge. Three weeks later, Melanie will go through filing for divorce. And we pick up a month after April the 28th, 2004, when the police asks Melanie to come to the station to identify the body and also to tell her that her husband is dead. Rapid-fire question, just to see how embedded into the true crime world you are. Somebody brings you into a police station. They're telling you your loved one has died. Of course, you're emotional, you cry. They now have to ask you some questions. What is the first question that you ask them? If you are 100% innocent, if you have nothing to do with the thing, the correct answer to this question is, how did he die? She doesn't ask that question. Not just that, but they asked to interrogate her. And of course, as everybody smart does, she does ask to come back with an attorney. And she does, and doesn't come back with only one, but two attorneys. And the police in this story found that to be super weird. They said that they have never witnessed anything like that happening. Like one attorney, yeah, but she really armors up from the get-go. The next interesting tidbit is they kind of like slide the picture of a suitcase being like, hey, can you recognize it? She doesn't remember them ever having any matching suitcases. But the next day, then she rings them back and actually says, no, 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 we did have. I think we had three of them, but I just never noticed them gone. It must have been Bill that night, you know, berating me going up and down the stairs. That must have been why he was going up and down so many times, like packing up all of those suitcases because he was leaving me forever. So he packed up all of his clothes. This particular thing isn't really the hill that I would die on. Maybe a bit later becomes more of a major issue. But right now, whether it is because of COVID or anything, like, honestly, I have no idea what suitcases I have at my home. I have a feeling I would be aware if it was, like, a matching pair of free expensive suitcases. But again, would I know whether they were here or, like, somewhere else, whether only one is here? This is not something I would really focus on, except until you think of the point that she actually moved her family to that inn for at least a couple of nights. We actually have no idea how long she stayed there because she paid in cash. So if you are, again, packing up, staying somewhere with your children for a couple of nights, you would have probably used some form of bags or suitcases to do that. So that's where I'm starting to, again, find everything a bit sus. They ask her what kind of person Bill was, and she says she used to piss people off. And they're like, wow, this is the first thing that comes out of this woman's mouth. Okay, so the next question is, do you know, Melanie, where his car might be? And she says, hmm, have you checked the Atlantic City? Because that's where he used to go. Loves to gamble, piece of shit. Loves to gamble. So have you checked the Atlantic City? And they're like, no, didn't have the reason so far. Nobody else mentioned this, so let's check Atlantic City, I guess. 
By this point, she has already emptied their old apartment and his clothes, well, she gave the remaining of it or all of it. We'll, again, never know, like, how much of his clothes did she dispose of or did he take with him. But she gives whatever was left to his friends and family in the garbage bags. Two things here. Those would end up being the same garbage bags that the body was wrapped up in. Second thing, if you are packing up his clothes, why not, again, pack it up in suitcases, then maybe empty those suitcases in their house, and then bring the suitcases with you? Or are you maybe out of suitcases for a not particular reason? From the get-go, the police suspected Melanie, and they didn't really ever look much else. So, they suspected her because of the garbage bags and also because his head was wrapped in a hospital blanket and she was a nurse, so she would have access to one. But now, with this Atlantic City clue, they're like, okay, we need to find his car. Maybe it can point us into further direction and maybe it will open up the options that she clearly wants us to see. That he was up to no good, could have gotten over his head and maybe got into a bad crowd. And maybe, I don't know, somebody was trying to collect any unpaid debts from the guy. As this is happening, they have to release the body to her. And as soon as they do, she cremates him and holds his funeral. And holds his funeral really quickly, a really short one. And after that, she just has this really odd call with Sue. Remember Sue from the beginning of the story? Like, they're mutual friends. They used to go holidays together. Husband knows him from the Navy. So, Sue says on this phone call, Melanie kind of just said, like, well, now he's gone. This chapter is closed and I'm a single mother. I need to move on with my life. And Sue was like, no, we need to find out who killed Bill first and then you move on with your life. And as soon as you hung up that phone call, she turned to John and said she killed him. The police here, by this point, has gone to the Atlantic City and has recovered his car. And they are doing the forensics on it, processing all of that, and trying to get the CCTV footage from that area. As the forensics are being processed, the police is taping all of Melanie's phone calls. And boy, does Melanie deliver! She watched some Criminal Minds and CIS, whatever she watched, because she is speaking in code. Okay. The surveillance was so intense and over a 40-day period they recorded 500 hours of her phone calls. Every time you get your head back above water and that hand reaches out from beyond the grave. A lot of those calls were very cryptic. Hey. How you doing? I spoke to, uh, uh, what's his name, about shipping? Alex. Uh, I didn't want to say names. Do you understand what I'm saying? She used the phrase a lot, uh, being cut off at the knees. At least me with a lawyer ahead of time who might cut it off at the knees. Does that look suspicious? It doesn't matter what it looks like. She was a little salty. That was her personality, though. She was a Jersey girl. A lot of them were to her boyfriend, Dr. Bradley Miller. It was very clear right from the beginning that the relationship with Dr. Miller was different. There was a change in her voice. It was a a softer tone. 
it's a eureka moment when they realize that she's having an affair because it provides motive. Dr. Miller also becomes a, a suspect. So one night when Dr. Miller was leaving work, he was going to his car. And the detectives came out to confront him. Dr. Miller was adamant that he had nothing to do with any crime and he didn't know anything about this. And so I think the police said, well, prove it. You know, if you're willing to wear a wire, we'll believe you. It's now 10.30 p.m. May 31st, 2005. Brad Miller making an outgoing call to Melanie McGuire. Did anybody else find the cutoff with the knees comment as creepy as I did? I get that it's an expression, but I'm sorry, this is exactly what happened in this case. It's fucking creepy. As you heard, this is happening for about 40 days. So let's go back to what they recovered once they actually went to the Atlantic City. They find his car, but they also find something really interesting. They find her easy pass. So this easy pass is the automatic toll collection system that basically kind of makes it easy for you to pass the customs, basically, to pay up for the toll. And it's all sort of done online from what I gathered through research. And Bill had his own, but also didn't always use it. So once the police recovers his car, they also recover the footage from the Flamingo Motel, at which parking lot the car was. The footage, like everything else, is blurry. There are these glowing lights right in the direction. But it kind of shows Bill's car being parked up in front of the Flamingo Motel at 12.40 a.m. on the 30th of April, so two days after he went missing. And then right after that, there is the second car, which according to the prosecution is similar to Melanie's, but they can't really identify anything. They can't really even see the license plates to prove that, nor can they see the passenger's face. That would mean that Melanie had an accomplice, because first of all, it's happening two days after they presume that he died, and also somebody had to drive his car and somebody else had to drive hers. Her story, of course, claiming to be innocent in this situation, is she's not proud of this moment, but she just snapped. Basically, what she used to do to spite Bill in the past when they would argue is kind of mess with his car. So she would do this often, right? He would go to the Atlantic City and she would follow him and she would know where he used to gamble. So she would have the fuck you moments. So as he's inside gambling, 
because she would take his keys, put them into his car, and drive it to like the seediest part of the city. And it would be that like, I'll show you moment. And then she would drive all the way back home to Woodbridge. Even in that timeline, who is taking care of these kids like while she's having fuck you moments every time her husband is gambling, which apparently was often. So this time, two days after their fight, bear in mind he slapped her, bear in mind she's going to file both a restraining order and file for divorce eventually, so she should be afraid of this guy. Two days after, she's like, I'm gonna have my fuck you moment again. I know where the son of a bitch is. She actually says those words. And she's going to go to Atlantic City, population of 37,999, according to 2019. Okay, Maya, you could have rounded that up to like almost 40k now. So, population of almost 40k. She's gonna go. She knows exactly where she's gonna find his car. And she's gonna fuck with it again. And she does that. And that is what they caught on surveillance. And that is why EZ Pass is going to show that as well. You know, sometimes you don't hear how crazy something sounds just when you write it down and then you say the crazy and then you realize how crazy it is. And how does it not sound crazy to her? So this whole part is the hill that I am willing to die on calling bullshit on, on that hill. The hill, mm, the hill it does not exist, no. The hill, it just, it just doesn't make you sound innocent, however you play it. It doesn't make you sound innocent. And also, I almost forgot, even in the I'm innocent story, Bill's car was already there and I just drove mine, aren't we all screaming the same thing? Where are the kids? during this time? What, did she just leave her two-year-old and four-year-old at, like, a motel or her own house? Who is taking care of the kids? And what did she say to those people? Whether it is her parents, her stepfather, whether it is her friends. Like, what kind of excuse did she give those people? Where the fuck is she going? Because this isn't just, like, somebody irrational, like your irrational ex having a snapped moment. This is a person that also has two children. So somebody needs to account for that part of the story. And nobody here really does. A couple of hours after returning from the Atlantic City, so this is now the afternoon of April the 30th, she goes to the Middlesex County Court to get the restraining order. So yet again poses a question of how was she sure that she would not encounter her abusive husband on her fuck you trip to Atlantic City. And something that will be crucial, because this whole testimony is on tape, one thing I already played, and that is that she said she isn't aware of them having any weapons in the house. And the second one, they will ask her, does she know where her husband is at this very moment? And she will say no after just returning from where she thinks 100% her husband is. And, well, his car is there, so logically, he should be too. And the story that she would later tell to Dr. Miller about this justifying that nobody else was there with her is that she first drove to the Atlantic City, then took a cab back to Woodbridge Edison area, then another cab to Atlantic City to collect her own car. And she even told him that she actually made two later trips to Atlantic City on the 2nd of May and the 18th of May to look for Biel and to check on the car. 
again, despite of her filing a restraining order, saying she doesn't know where her husband is, and being scared of him. After filing a restraining order, five days after this trip to the Atlantic City, she drives to Delaware. Delaware is kind of on the route where Chesapeake Bay area, where the suitcases started showing up, is. And she told Dr. Miller again that she went furniture shopping. Now, if somebody told me this, well, I would expect to see this furniture in their house. Again, if the police is following up on every single detail, where is the furniture? I'm not sure if this was never made public or... They just never really looked into it. Like, did she ever buy anything? Does she have any receipts? Having receipts would make her hella guilty, I'm just gonna say. But, you know, does she actually... Did she actually ever stop at a single furniture shop? Or was this just an excuse? And again, I know this is 2004, but just playing devil's advocate, like, on both sides, trying to give you the unbiased account of events, couldn't you track the actual location of the car if we are saying she's disposing of the bodies in this body of water? Well, she needs to walk, whether it is on the bridge or, like, on the beach, disposing these suitcases one by one in broad daylight. Bear in mind, this is happening during the day. Super risky as well if somebody stops you, asks you to open the trunk of your car, asks you to what is in your suitcases. She would have had to be driving super slowly. So there are truly the gaps in this story. And my main one is the gaps in the location. Why do we not have the GPS data of exactly where she stopped and how possible or impossible would be to then dispose the suitcases from that location for them to turn up in the places that they have turned up in? There are people looking to exonerate her, and she is still claiming her innocence. So, again, just throwing ideas her way if she does want to look into them. Because these are just pieces of information that I couldn't find, and that strike me just immediately on top of my head as something that should have been looked into. And yet again, like, with every single part of this story, we are hearing the same thing. There is just no physical evidence. I'm here speaking with the evidence that was found within the suitcases. They found, like, a strand of hair that they thought might be Melanie's. Again, nothing definitely connecting it to her. Hair DNA is obviously not the most viable one. They found a lot of animal hair in the suitcase that then her defense team would later use to showcase that maybe Bill was actually killed outside somewhere. But also, interestingly, they have searched her Woodbridge apartment. They have spread luminol everywhere. They have done all of the forensic tests, flipped this place inside and out, and couldn't find any evidence that this was their crime scene. And that was prosecution's theory, that this is where she killed him that night, that morning, when they woke up, started arguing for whatever the fuck is the reason, probably the fact that she told him she wants a divorce, and he was pissed because they, well, didn't know she had an affair, and also the fact that they just settled for a house, and the fact that he thought his marriage was okay, I guess. That is the crucial part for me, where they should have been able to find DNA, and they didn't, because they thought that was the crime scene. Which leads me to two things. First of all, why was it so deeply cleaned? People will testify in the trial that they would come visit Melanie in the weeks after and that the whole flat would smell of bleach. But also, we know that bleach doesn't really eliminate everything. 
So I'm thinking, how would she have single-handedly cleaned this house so professionally to the point that they could not find a single drop of blood? But then, on the other hand, like, they couldn't technically find a trace that Bill McGuire lived in the place, which is also very suspect, because why did she deep clean the whole house right after her husband went missing? Both of those points kind of, again, lead you to think that somebody else must have been involved. Even if not aware of a crime happening, somebody at least took care of the children, and she sold them some excuse of why they had to take care of her children then and there. Despite lacking the actual forensic evidence, the police thought that they had enough circumstantial evidence to arrest her and go through with the trial, and they also thought that the jury will find the motive to be really strong. Because, of course, this is a woman who... Because, of course, this is a woman who was having an affair. At some point, she actually told Brad Miller that if she was ever to divorce Bill, that he told her he would make sure to fight her for the custody of the children. So, she saw no way out. She wanted to file for a divorce, but now they settled for this house. She has reached her breaking point and decided that the only way out was to get rid of him and somehow commit this perfect crime never get caught and continue her affair with Brad Miller, eventually get him to divorce or whatever, and leave his children behind and get married to him. So, on June the 2nd, 2005, more than a year after the murder, they wait for Melanie to drop her kids off at daycare, and they finally make an arrest. Let's see if the circumstantial evidence will end up being enough. The trial takes place and it was televised, which I think personally was a mistake. I mean, a mistake for the defense to allow it if they had any choice, because we know she loves the publicity. She gave those two interviews. She probably would have given you many more if you asked her to. So, this was just giving her more publicity, which she already loved. Patty Preciosa was the attorney for the persecution, and Joy Takapina was the celebrity attorney for the defense. The evidence in this case points to a well-organized, meticulously planned execution of a murder. Is that a fair description of you? Were you somebody, if you were going to do something, you were going to do it all the way? Correct. And I would counter that argument with, if that's the case, then I would have been sure to not include blankets that could be traced to me, my own luggage. I don't get to be an evil genius and an idiot at the same time. You're not going to be able to tell you where William McGuire was killed, how he was killed, when he was killed, defense were really trying to play to the jury that Bill was a major gambler and he may have owed thousands and thousands of dollars. He's a big gambler because he gambled beyond his means. When you have money on the street and you're behind, you're not making payments, you know what happens? You get shot here and you get shot here. Let's speak about the evidence that they had because there was plenty full of circumstantial evidence. Obviously, in order to compensate for the fact that physical evidence was really non-existent. So, let's go back into a timeline with these pieces of evidence and sort of the arguments between the prosecution and the defense. 
and we need to start from the gun. Because the defense here is going to say, yes, she bought the gun, it's just a coincidence that she bought it two days before Bill died, but she got it because he asked her to get a gun, and it just appears that this is when she could get some time to travel to Pennsylvania and get it. And in that restraining order, well, she didn't really lie. She didn't know if Bill brought a gun with him because he was the one that needed it in the first place. She just didn't know if the gun was in the house any longer or not, and it would have made complete sense to her that with Bill, the gun that Bill wanted in the first place also disappeared. Why did Bill want to buy a gun? She had the answer for that as well. Bill thought that he was in trouble because of all of the gambling issues that he might have had. He didn't really specify, didn't really give her many reasons, but he thought he was in trouble. Now, the prosecution had a completely different story. Of course, they tracked down the shop where she bought a gun in Pennsylvania, and the guy remembered her well, because he usually doesn't get many women buying guns. And also, he remembered in particular when he gave her the form to fill out to purchase this weapon, well, that under the occupation, she put that she was a nurse. And he remembers selling her particular gun and particular ammunition for it. Then they also brought this guy up to the stand to testify, but they also had the tapings from their phone conversations. So, this guy was James Finn, and he used to study with Melanie and always had a crush on her, but she never had a crush on him. She just seemed to use him for information as and when she pleased. So, on this occasion, mid-April that same year, she started writing to James about how would she go about buying a gun. So, he told her about the requirements of getting one in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. And he also testified that Melanie said that the reason why she actually wanted a gun was because the relationship with Bill was getting sour and she might look to file for a divorce, so she just wanted to be able to protect herself. Further in his testimony, he also said that she continued communicating with him even after she bought a gun. But then when they played the tape recordings with James Finn, she's saying that Bill actually wanted a gun to protect them in their new home and that he couldn't buy the gun himself because of some criminal record that he had in the past. I'm not sure whether she was referring to the reckless driving charge, but apparently he couldn't buy a gun. So, she's now given the third reason. She cannot hold the story straight. Another witness that they had to testify about this weapon purchase was Bill's co-worker. And now, well, the defense obviously loved this witness because he said that Bill did actually tell him all throughout, like, the months of the year 2004 that he really wanted a gun, nothing to do with Melanie, that he wanted a gun, like, to protect himself. And then the prosecution was like, well, okay, so you see how we interviewed you, like, twice before this trial thing that is now for the public? Why didn't you mention any of that then? And the prosecution really made it sound like, well, this testimony doesn't really count because you don't have the proof that he discussed it with you in April that year. There's nothing in writing, there's no, like, phone calls, it's just literally your word. But also that even if he did ask her to buy the gun, you see, it doesn't negate the ballistics and the science proving that 
the bullets that were found in his body came from a gun like this. Now, speaking of ballistics, because you hear that and you're like, wow, my case closed, like, let's wrap this up. They confirmed that the bullets were the bullets from the same gun and she bought a gun. We have it. Well, the bullets were these 38 caliber wad cutter bullets and based on the markings, they could have been fired from guns produced by six or more manufacturers, including Taurus. That's why it's not really a smoking gun situation that we are talking about. Another thing that when I hear, I don't really hear it going into anybody's favor, it is that one of the bullets that ended up in Bill's torso actually had like greenish fibers on it. And well, Cindy, Bill's sister, testified that Maguire's had green pillows inside the house. And that since then, the police couldn't recover those pillows. So, stating obviously, you know, she used the pillows to muffle the sound. And that's why a bullet going through a pillow would have entered his body with these green fibers on it. But the kicker here yet again is that nobody could connect these fibers to the couch or the pillows that were in their apartment. During the arguments about the gun, and also really at so many points during this trial, the defense really tried to drive the point across that the police always had the tunnel vision. They never looked at any other suspects as to why Bill would have actually needed his gun to protect himself. They never looked at the gambling. We still, to this day, have no account of how often he would actually gamble, how often he would actually go to Atlantic City. Again, something that could probably easily be obtained by GPS systems of today. I don't know whether or not that was possible in 2004. And they also never looked at the people that Bill associated himself with. They only had one suspect from day one. That was his wife. Back to our timeline. We have the gun. Now, the next thing that they laid down as the evidence was the internet searches in the McGuire's home. I'm saying it that way because they were done on this computer that both of them were using. So, they still, again, can't prove that it was Melanie that made these searches. The searches, though, are incriminating as fuck. Undetectable poisons, state gun laws, instant poison, gun laws in Pennsylvania, toxic insulin levels, fatal insulin doses, fatal digoxin doses, instant undetectable poisons, how to commit suicide, how to commit murder, how to purchase hunting rifles in New Jersey, pesticides as poison, insulin as a poison, morphine poisoning, how to find chloroform, insulin shock, Neuromuscular blocking agents, sedatives, tranquilizers, barbiturates, nembutal, pharmacy, chloral hydrate, chloral and side effects, and Walgreens. Sorry that I had to put you through this, but it will make sense in the exact same sequence as the story and the timeline progresses. Next piece of evidence that they showed at the trial was the CCTV. As I told you, the CCTV from the Flamingo Motel in Atlantic City is super grainy. But here the prosecution will say that somebody else helped Melanie, that they have driven two cars and parked them up there, and then the defense and Melanie are going to have her, oh, I snapped story, and it was me having made two trips to the Atlantic City with the cabs that you also can't track. 
To support their theory, prosecution actually had a piece of forensic evidence here, and that is the evidence that they have found inside of Bill's car. So, they have found these microscopic, and I mean microscopic, they literally, even during the trial, showed them under a freaking microscope, something that they called human sawdust. Now, this is messed up, but the point is that these are the little pieces of human skin, and by account of all of these scientists, it could not be the human skin of an alive human being. So, it's somebody's dead, but it's minuscule. So, their theory is that, obviously, she killed them at the Woodbridge apartment, figures out I need to get rid of his car first, and the plausible solution is to drive it to the Atlantic City, but as she is still cleaning the house, it still isn't perfectly cleaned, and she is in the process of dismembering the body, once she actually puts the shoes on and leaves that house to drive both of those cars, well, the traces of Bill's shed human skin post-mortem end up in the car because they were stuck to her shoes. Inside the glove compartment in his car, they recovered this chlorohydrate and a syringe. And the syringe is similar like the ones that they dispense in the medical practice where Melanie worked. But they also couldn't find anybody else's fingerprints but Bill's inside of the car. Now, back to this prescription, because it will tie back to all of those internet searches. So, remember how she searched the name of the medication? Well, the prescription was in the name of one of the patients of Dr. Miller's. And apparently, it had been filled, meaning given to a patient, at 8.32 a.m. at the Walgreens Pharmacy in Edison. And the records show that Melanie actually dropped her kids off that morning at 8.20 a.m., and that she would have been right on time to pick that prescription up from the Walgreens pharmacy. The evidence from the pharmacy shows that it was filled on one of the prescription pads that Dr. Miller used and signed in his signature. But then later, he testified this isn't really his signature and that it kind of looks like Melanie's handwriting. This, yet again, is circumstantial because they don't have CCTV showing her picking up this prescription. It wasn't unusual for her to sign off the name, even though nurses can't really sign off on any prescriptions, and it was unusual for them to prescribe that drug in the first place. But again, this isn't like a 100% science where somebody can prove that this definitely was signed off by Melanie and picked up by her and then given to her husband, and that's how the syringe ended up in a car. The way this fits into the timeline is that she injects him with this chloral hydrate substance to sort of knock him out, then she shoots him through one of those greenish pillows, dismembers of his body, and then two days later drives to the Atlantic City to dispose of the car, and then drives towards Delaware to dispose of the free suitcases in the Chesapeake Bay. One sideline here, this does make a lot more sense thinking about it from the prosecution's point of view than from the defense's with, like, I'm innocent story. Because why leave it in the car? Why not just dispose of it if you will later try to claim that he was actually killed at a secondary location, if you will clean the house perfectly? Why leave the syringe that can potentially connect to you and then your internet searches and all of that? 
In our timeline now, Bill is dead, she disposed of the car and then of his body. And of course, Bill was supposed to appear at work. So this is when the covering up phase starts. In the early morning on April the 29th, so the day after he supposedly went missing, an email was sent from Bill's Blackberry to his supervisors saying that he will be out sick today. One of those emails would actually end up not being delivered, meaning that Bill supposedly used the incorrect email address, and the supervisor would testify in court saying that he definitely knew my whole email address. And this BlackBerry will later be found in the car. Also, another call was made from Bill's phone on April the 30th, 2004, so the day that the car was being transported to the Atlantic City. And this friend actually testified that they never received a call, that he would have left a message usually on the answering machine, but he didn't receive one on that day. Persecution is of an opinion that Melanie just made this call, would stay silent on it for an hour, sort of to give an appearance that he was still alive. In terms of the actual drives to the Atlantic City, the police actually looked at Melanie's stepfather. They didn't have anything substantial to arrest him as the accomplice or anything like that, but they investigated briefly of the profile of somebody in the family who would have helped her out because they could account for the lover boy, but they couldn't really account for all of her family members. And another thing about her trips that didn't look good in court was that she called the Easy Pass customer service, requesting that they remove the charges on the two different days in May when she supposedly traveled to the Atlantic City to check up on his car, stating that they were incorrect. Further prosecution also used this to say, well, why did she go, first of all, and what, why is she covering this up? The prosecution argued that this means that she is trying to conceal something and cover it up and that she is upset about these charges because they don't really fit into her story of somebody being really scared of her abusive husband that just disappeared on her and the kids. And here they put into the evidence that easy past records that were actually frequently used by her parents were unusually quiet. So, like, there was no movement on them between April 28th and May the 2nd, which is when she supposedly traveled to the Atlantic City and also when, supposedly, she had some assistance dismembering her husband's body. Based on those records, so based on the toll records and also the records from the childcare, they're saying that she placed the kids in the care of the parents on May the 3rd. And according to the prosecution, that is when she actually returned to Woodbridge to just pick up those suitcases where the body was already drained from all of the blood and the house was already clean and then drove those to Delaware to dispose of them. Now, remember when they first arrested her in June 2005? Well, right after she was released on bail, the Attorney General of New Jersey started getting some letters that would try to distract them from looking at Melanie and providing maybe for a different option. The writer of these letters claimed that Billy Mack has been killed because he was unreliable and greedy. And to prove that the letter is indeed not a hoax, the writer of it actually provided this attorney general with three different facts that would only be known by the actual killer. 
prosecution read this letter to the jury, and the letter apparently had the details that Bill gave to that anonymous writer about how he was a shitty husband, and this person shared that in this letter where they're confessing to Bill's murder as well. But then the defense sees this and says, well, this clearly couldn't have been Melanie because she doesn't have this information. She wouldn't have known these facts. They would eventually track the shipping charges for this package, and it was paid by $50 American Express gift card. They know where it was purchased, and they had footage of the pharmacy. And on the CCTV, they see a woman walking out of this pharmacy, each side of the trial arguing that the footage is grainy or that it clearly shows that this was Melanie in it. Now that we have the timeline connected with the evidence, what about the actual forensics? Thinking about what I find to be the most substantial piece of evidence, that shedding skin in the car, well, each side had their own experts. And then the prosecution told their story. It is definitely somebody shed skin after their death. It was on her shoes because of the smallness of the particles. But when questioned by the defense, they said that this cut is usually made with an injury, such as bleeding or scarring, and the autopsy showed that there were no scars on Bill's body. Then you have the prosecution intercepting, being like, well... No, there would be the scarring if you are actually involved in dismembering of the body, which we are suspecting that she was, and that's how these particles ended up on her shoes in the first place. Then they moved on to the forensics of the actual crime scene. So the prosecution stated it was their Woodbridge apartment, the old apartment that they still haven't moved out of. And to that goes the fact that Melanie moved herself and the children to that inn. Like, why the hell move them from the house if there's nothing wrong inside the house? But then the defense would say, well, she felt threatened, like her husband has been abusive, she had to pay in cash in order for him not to find them. The defense also provided a lot of phone calls have been made from that particular inn when Melanie was staying during daytime on those crucial dates, meaning that she wasn't able to just leave and, what, go back, dismember the body, go to the Atlantic City. Like, all of those things couldn't have been done by the same person. And beyond just thinking about things like blood splatter around this apartment, the defense actually said, well, you would have clearly had to find, like, some cuts that were made by saws or whatever was used to dismember this body, and you haven't. Also, if we are saying that this is the crime scene, that means that he was shot there as well. So some ballistic forensic evidence should have been found inside of that flat. Both sides had something else to contribute to this argument. Now, this is the brutal part. Remember the first suitcase, the bottom part of his legs? Yes, so the medical examiner claimed that these lower legs looked fresh, which would be consistent if the body was only dead for one day in dry or cool environment. So the prosecution said, well, she probably cut him up and put him into a freezer until she figured out this cool car situation and how she's going to package the body and then where she's going to dispose of the body parts. 
But the defense is saying he definitely wasn't killed when you were saying that he was killed. So the timeline here for you is wrong. But here there were no receipts showing that she bought large amounts of ice. There was no proof that she had like enough storage space in a freezer, anything of that sort. And also the medical records just don't really support that the body parts have been kept somewhere. I guess you could be able to see if for like weeks a body part was kept somewhere else. I'm not sure, but I guess even in 2004 science you should have been able to see something like that. Here we come to a crucial part of the evidence, the garbage bags, because here like they didn't have anything forensically connecting her to it. So the prosecution put up a show. They had this expert. They even had a projector, you know, over which they put this plastic bag to show sort of like the creases and how this means that the bags were produced by the same press at the same time as the ones that were found in their house. And this expert had 27 years of experience in the plastic bag industry. Kill me, kill me right now. Like, what is this job? It's not funny. I respect your work, sir. Um, He had also previously been qualified twice to testify in courts as an expert in plastic bag manufacturing and identification. Meaning, he knows what he's on about, okay? I'm not laughing about it. 27 years, though, mate. What are you doing? I hope you have fun hobbies. Okay. So this expert examined everything from the design, the size, the thickness, color, sealing characteristics. And if you are really a diehard in this industry, he identified that the dye lines between the two sets were a match, and this meant that this was a single manufacturing process. Then the defense put their expert, who had some expertise in chemistry, and said that the bags aren't a chemical match, and also that the prosecutor's witness didn't conduct all of the tests that were available for these garbage bags, so he just limited it to what he thought was relevant. Which, come on, sir, if you have 27 years, and this is what this case is hanging on... (laughs) hanging on the garbage bags. I have no words. So it took 81 witnesses and seven weeks, but we are here. I saved the juiciest moment for the last because Miller, the lover boy, takes the stand. The most anticipated day of this trial is when the man who Melanie McGuire had a three-year affair with, Dr. Bradley Miller, took the stand. Everybody knew that that was the prosecution's star witness and the court was filled. And when you saw him, what was your feeling? How could you? How could you? Dr. Miller was in a very difficult spot. He and his family had gone through a very difficult time, and it was just made clear to him, just take a deep breath and make sure you tell the absolute truth. Can you describe to the jury what was your relationship with her? Uh, We worked together. She was an excellent nurse. She took very good care of the patients. Uh, They all loved her. Sir, did there come a time when your relationship with Miss McGuire got more intimate? Yes, it, it, it did. It was towards the end of her second pregnancy. She was about 38 weeks pregnant. <clears throat> and um, before she went on maternity leave, um, we had oral sex in the office. So not bragging that. It has to be pretty hard to hear it come out the core. 
hard for me to hear it, hard for me to think, oh my God, my parents are hearing this, my 84-year-old grandmother is hearing this. Were you in love with the defendant? Yes, I was. Had the two of you discussed future plans together? Yes, we were hoping to be together in the future. With Dr. Miller on the stand, prosecutors were able to score some points because there were certain things that Melanie never told Dr. Miller. Did the defendant ever tell you that she purchased a gun? No, ma'am. I had no knowledge of her purchasing the gun. Did the defendant ever tell you that she went to Atlantic City and parked her husband Bill's car at the Flamingo Hotel? No, she did not. Did there come a time when the defendant shared with you that she had done that? Yes, and I asked her, well, why didn't you tell me this sooner? And and she told me that she didn't want me to be upset that she's going back to find Bill to bring him back uh, and, you know, rekindle the relationship. This is in reference to consensual recordings between Brad Miller and Melanie McGuire. You agreed to consensually record a conversation with the defendant? Yes, I did. Prosecutors really wanted the jury to hear those intercepted calls so they could get a sense that maybe her desire to be with him was the motive for the murder. During the calls, uh, Dr. Miller spoke about their future together, probably prompted by detectives. The understanding between us had always been that the children came first. And he starts talking about divorce and a future and moving forward. And I even say on the tape, why are you talking like this all of a sudden? The defense was also able to score some points with those recordings, which called into question Dr. Miller's character. At the time of those secret recordings, he was still having an intimate relationship with her. After you tape recorded her, sir? You then had additional intimate relationship, correct? Yes, sir. Did you tell her that, by the way, that you had tape recorder? No, I did not. I think that was damaging to his character. It was a very big turnoff to the jury. It's it's tough. That was a tough betrayal to, to swallow. A serious question. Do you think she was more pissed off about the betrayal and the taping of the phones? or about the fact that he mentioned the cheeky BJ. Actually, actually, wait, I mean, by the way that she was pissed, I'm thinking that this was about her giving him oral sex. This man dated an oral woman. I wouldn't put it past him that it was the other way around. I'm sorry. It's just, it's in my head, and now it's, it's here, it's on tape. Fuck it. And now we finally come to the moment that we have all been waiting for. The closing statements and the verdict. When you combine the computer searches, the prescription for chloral hydrate on prescription pads that the defendant used, and then you have the victim found inside their matching luggage, the bullets consistent with the gun that she purchased. There's a mountain of evidence. There's no question in my mind. Uh, that she did I also don't believe that she acted alone. You don't need the precise when. You don't need the precise where. You don't have to find that she pulled the trigger. You don't have to find that she had hands-on physically in regards to his death. Well, boy, that leaves a, a lot of speculation out there for the jury. You can't guess someone 
into prison for the rest of their life. Well, the greasy hair here is right in my opinion, but on April the 23rd, 2007, they found her guilty of murder. She cries in court even before they read the verdict, and what strikes me immediately is that this is the only time we have seen her cry. And she has had two public interviews and has also been in this televised trial for seven weeks, and this is the only time she cries when she feels sorry for herself. She gets sentenced to 63 years, 8 months and 30 days for the first-degree murder, then 5 to 10 years for desecration of human remains, 2 years and 6 months to 5 years for third-degree perjury, and a maximum sentence of life for second-degree possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. In prison, she will end up exhausting all of her appeals... Some of these appeals are surrounding the fact that the jurors were repeatedly exposed to the media accounts because of how public this case really was, the state's reliance on the absence of the evidence, and the court errors in admitting expert testimony regarding the garbage bags. So those bits that you have seen from a recent interview were actually from her interview for ABC from last year, so after she has already served about 17 years. And for the first time ever, she said she was hopeful because these two podcasters, these two criminologists, got onto her case and started a podcast called Direct Appeal. These two, Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg, actually said that there are a couple of pieces of evidence that should be enough grounds for the appeal, especially focusing on those garbage bags and the fact that that supposed expert hasn't conducted all of the tests on them. These garbage bags also apparently had some nail polish on them, and they never managed to track this nail polish down. They never managed to actually recover whether or not this belonged to melanin. Then there was the animal hair that I mentioned that was found inside a suitcase. And basically what these two are saying is that every single time when some pieces of evidence would to be represented in court, well, the prosecution, meaning the state, would kind of decide they are not of the evidentiary value. So every time it would sue them, they wouldn't really pursue it. And that is probably why they didn't pursue any other options. Like in this case, they did try to connect Melanie to some form of pet, but they couldn't, so they just excluded that from the evidence. Amy and Megan are also focusing on the gun. Well, first of all, the fact that it was never found, but then also that nobody checked the serial numbers on hers to prove that it is the same one or whether or not a different gun has been used. And then another important thing, something that is called lands and grooves, which in simple terms are the markings that a bullet gets once it's fired through a gun. So her weapon had five of those, and the weapon that has killed her husband had six. And then later, Taurus, the manufacturer, would put on their website after this trial that their guns can cause either five or six of these lands and grooves. Melanie won't be eligible for parole until she is 101 years old, so the chances are that she will remain in prison for the rest of her life, unless something really solid pops up to exonerate her. 
And the kids are luckily in Cindy's custody, Bill's sister. I say luckily because I could never fully discard whether or not her family was involved. And I mean, neither did the state, really. It's not about my opinion here. But yeah, the state really couldn't discard whether or not one of the members of her family helped her out. And also, just judging from how they were in the interviews, I can't really say that they would have had the most positive outlook of their father, who really was the victim in this case, had they lived with them. And her final message in this latest interview to her kids is make up your mind, don't accept what you're being told on the surface, dig, dig. These documents exist. This stuff exists. It's out there. So that is it on the case. Now I'm just going to break down the red flags versus the actual evidence list, just as sort of a summary, and then sort of my opinions, and then we are out of here. In terms of red flags, so she searched for the gun, she goes and buys the gun at a really inconvenient time, she does make those internet searches, or somebody in the house again does it at the most inconvenient time, and those searches are hella incriminating. She doesn't report him missing. She either disposes of the car or makes that trip to the Atlantic City that would be incriminating because she is technically afraid of her husband. We have the gaps in her story as to where does she return to, where are the kids during this whole timeline, who are they staying with, who is her supposed accomplice. She doesn't report him missing, but also doesn't file the restraining order straight after that fight, when she might have still had some evidence of that fight on her. So when you read this out as a timeline, as we have done during this video, it makes sense. It just flows. Now, in terms of the circumstantial evidence that was presented at trial, they had reports of the medical examiners witness interviews, voluntary statements, her phone call statements, records from the gun shop in Pennsylvania, pharmacy records, expert evaluations of forensic evidence, both from the suitcases and the car, DNA identification of the trace evidence on the human sawdust, the computer history, the handwriting analysis on the signature, the consensual taping on phone conversations, and the wiretapping of the phones of the defendant and the parents. Was there anything solid, or were there just the testimonies compensating for the lack of the actual forensic evidence? I mean, there's no lie that here, really, the quantity compensated over for the quality. But still, circumstantial evidence is still evidence. Something that drove me insane, even after reading one article, and that really got me into researching this story for this week, and that on one side can work to exonerate her and overturn her conviction, but then on the other side makes me really think, well, why didn't she come up with this? Because it's very obvious. It's her own timeline. Timestamps. Alibis. Like, she has two kids that she drives to daycare every single day the car GPS data to confirm that, the daycare. Doesn't she clock in and clock out as a nurse? 
that furniture store in Delaware. If that ever happened, why not track people down then and there to testify on your behalf? If they have worked, they can remember you there, or they might have CCTV. The discussions with a lawyer about the divorce that happened right after, the restraining order court appointment, we should have timestamps for all of these to be able to place them within this story and to confirm whether or not she had the time where she was at certain points, and then focus on somebody else. And I mean that in a way of like either focusing on who was her accomplice, because she definitely didn't do this by herself. Like somebody had to take care of these children at best. Or focusing on somebody else completely if she is claiming that she is innocent. And these are just the things on top of my head. So I'm thinking if you are really trying to prove that you are innocent, why don't they cross your mind? Or do they cross your mind and you know that they will incriminate you further and that is why you are not presenting those for your appeals? And finally, this documentary ends with, like, a bit of a bizarre note, but not so much. It's very fitting to Melanie's character. I feel like a lot of you might not agree with me on some of those points, but I think we can all agree that This woman is one of the most unlikable people that I have ever spoken about on this freaking channel. And boy, I've covered many. I've covered many. And the argument that they end up with was, well, why Chesapeake Bay? And if you remember from the beginning of that story, that whole argument that started at apparently 3-4 a.m. was that Bill didn't want to settle for a house there in Woodbridge, but rather wanted them to move to the beach, to Virginia, to Chesapeake Bay area. So some theories surrounding this case were that she disposed of his body there as one last fuck you moment towards her husband, the same way that she had it with the cars, with all the arguments, with all of her actions. This was one last fuck you. You wanted to live there. I didn't. So now you go live there for the rest of your post-life, I guess. Now that you have heard the whole story, it would be a perfect timing for you to leave any of your opinions, what you think about this case, in the comments. Do you think she was innocent? Do you think she was guilty? Was she wrongfully convicted? Couple of things. My thought process during this case was, well, okay, let's say that this was successful, that she wasn't convicted. Where would that affair have led to? Like, would he ever... Because they always said children are in the first place, right? So does this mean that they would have gotten rid of his spouse? Or, like, where was this affair going, was my whole thought process when I was listening to this. It just seemed like, you know, she was trying to say that she will take care of it, never really mentioning what that meant. So she just thought that things will take care of themselves and the two of them will continue the affair while he's still married with children and that would just be okay. What was the end game there? For somebody with a type A personality, Melanie, mm, you're really competitive, but then what, what are you doing with the competition? Just strikes me as odd. Just strikes me as odd. And also when listening to the evidence and in particular the trial portion of this case, was anybody else getting Scott Peterson vibes? 
Because I sure as hell was. Like, the story makes sense. The timeline reads perfectly. It flows. And that makes you believe, and your gut feeling says she's guilty. But then, as a member of the jury listening to this, you know, the prosecution saying you don't have to know the where and the when, well, that will kind of leave me speculating, like, what the hell do you mean? Like, I want the exact timeline. I want all of the gaps filled for me. Not to mention the fact that there was just absolutely no forensic evidence here. As a member on that jury, I'm sorry to say, but I would probably not lean towards guilty just because of the lack of the evidence. Also, her interviews to me are as fascinating as his because both of them have some sociopathic tendencies, serious lack of empathy and emotion, and just generally such unlikable characters. Final words, gut feeling, says she's guilty. Evidence, not so much. How did she clean that house? That is my question. What is your magic, bitch? Like, what kind of bleach is this? I have never heard of a case except, like, how to get away with murder, you know, but that's fiction. Of a house that is so well deep cleaned that they can't find shit. What is your secret? Somebody, at least. Hey, Melanie. (laughs) Melanie. One day, on your deathbed, will you tell us the secret? If you are guilty, if you're innocent, I hope they exonerate you. Fuck it, man. What are your thoughts in the comments? I'm gonna exit this video. I've been recording for like the whole day. So, uh, I'm out of here. And you let me know your thoughts. And I will be back with a new video next week. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye now. Bye. Free. <sighs> We back with the disco ball, baby. The disco ball is reserved only for the special fucking cases like Melania here, okay? It's reserved for Dina Schlosser and now Melania, okay? That's where you had it on like about 100 videos on your podcast. Base podcast. This is a different channel. Shut the fuck up, man. What the fuck? Maya is the name. Good, but it's get. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, let's rock it. Okay, shut it, man. <laughs> this brain is like constantly, like, so exhausting. <laughs> like, one for that, the next life. Fuck my life. My is the name. Gone bad is the game. This is the series that you all join me for every Wednesday, where I talk about a person that, like you and me, has been sitting on their fat ass, leading the. Melania, the grip has not been gotten. Get the grip. She's like, I love nursing. She's like, I love my job. So Bill left me to gamble. Fuck him. I set an ultimatum. He didn't listen to me. Did I mention I love my job? My lover, like, he put her hands around my shoulder and, like, I gave him a BJ because that's just how life works. Did I mention how I fucking hate Bill? Bill Bill had an atrocious driving record. Oh my god, nursing. I'm a type A personality. Did I mention how much I hate Bill? <laughs> The whole interview. The whole inter- the roller coaster and she doesn't get it. She does not understand how crazy this sounds. That is one sentence after the other. She does not understand. <laughs> Let me baptize the hell out of her American name. Do you ever if any Americans are watching this video, do you ever just like sit down and think like, wow, my name is really, really American, like Other countries do not really use this name. Like, are you aware of how American your names are? You know, the Hillary's, the Jennifer's, the Courtney's, the Ashley's of this world. 
What, what else is there? Come on, Maya. You can do it. You can do it. The Janelles. The candles. What else? What else? What else? What else? It will come to me. It will come to me. At the most inappropriate times, it will come to me. <laughs> what is going on? Are you going? Are you going to school? Yeah, I am. Fuck me. Like, someone just walked me out of this fucking... Because I'm recording, bitch. You're moving constantly. Jesus Show me your belly. Show me your belly. I don't have a belly. Show me the belly. I, I want to get rid of this Fuck belly. Fuck off the belly. No, you're not getting rid of the belly. Show Hopefully me the your belly. Enjoy these Show me the belly. Yeah. Showcase you. Fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck is going on? This is plugged in. Plug something. Oh, for fuck's sake. Ruining my whole vibe. Why do you need a laptop if you're going to Tesco? Genius. Yeah. Plug another laptop. Give me another laptop. Oh fucking hell, give me a laptop. Fuck, my life ruined everything. Ruined everything. Jocelyn's. Who the fuck names their kids Jocelyn's? Oh my god, I'm sorry. If there's a Jocelyn <laughs> I'm running out of names. It should not be running out of names. Chad. Chad is a male's name. But it's definitely American as fuck. Josh. There are not that many Joshes out there. You literally met a Josh in the UK. What the fuck? You're running out of like female names. Phoebe. You worked with a Phoebe. I'm pulling this out of your ass right now. This is incredible. Like there are definitely more just American names, Maya. And you just failed at your own task. Who made you do this? Nobody. 